Um, okay. I I think that I have another word for the women. It's like Women's Day or something. Um, and then, so let me just give that because I think it will be encouraging, and then we'll see how much time is left to talk about the other things I think I'm supposed to talk about. Um, we were worshiping, and I had we were singing the doxology, um, and I had a very distinct memory. And this memory, I don't think Jane, his wife, even knows about this memory. Um, it, this was um, 1995, and Jane and I had just come back from Istanbul, Turkey. Um, we had a very difficult, I had a very difficult experience in Istanbul about a year there. It was very painful and trying and sort of took out everything I knew that I thought I knew about God. And uh, I actually came back from there. Uh, I was sure there was a God, but I wasn't really sure how the two of us might relate one with another. And I was very, very angry, very angry. The Lord was gracious in any case, and God provided us for us over the next six years. I, I worked in business with my dad in Pennsylvania. There was a specific day. Um, we had gotten this gift. It's a long story how we got it, but we ended up in a house for almost nothing per month. I mean, l- very little money, which we had very little money at the time. And we ended up in a house on an ostrich farm in western Pennsylvania. I know it's bizarre. It was like living in Jurassic Park. It was, it was, it was a strange situation. We got this house through a strange series of events. And um, <clears throat> I, one night, was cleaning the house. We had just gotten, um, we had just gotten took, taken possession of the house. I won't take a long time, but I have to describe God's goodness. In the bottom of this house, the bottom floor was a 24 by 36 room with stone fireplace on both sides and bay windows that looked out over the hills as well as the ostriches. It was an old house uh, built by a, a Gulf oil executive in the early 30s. It was a beautiful house. We had no business living there except that we were children of the king. And so we get this house and, we're, and we've got uh, three kids at this point and they're all small and I'm trying to figure out my life and where is God and we're, Jane's homeschooling the kids and there's a lot going on. But anyway, another sermon. <clears throat> this one night, I walked into the house and I was supposed to be cleaning the house before we would move in. Remember, I'm really angry at God, okay? We're not actually on speaking terms. I walk into the house and there's this smell of the hard wood and I start to clean the floors. The house is completely, you know, cleansed of stuff and it had already been cleaned once. I was basically coming to re-clean, to sort of put us into it. And... I don't know what happened because I was angry at God, but my spirit knew that I was connected with God. And in my spirit, I realized I started singing the doxology. And as some of you know, I'm not much of a singer. I'm progressing in my ability to do it in public. This night in this house in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, while I was cleaning the house, I belted the doxology. I sang out the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye, heavenly hosts. Praise him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I must have sang it for an hour straight. In every room, as loud as I can. Did you know that? (laughs) For the next two years, I was still angry with God. But that time, God, God so touched me with his provision, 
with what he'd done, he'd given us a house, a place to live, and he'd cleaned it. That all came back to me, and I just thought, Lord, why are you giving me all this? And I felt like the Lord said, you've got to tell the women they're living in cleansed homes. This is where, this is specifically for some of you women who have gone through a difficult season. Maybe you're in a difficult season, and the word of God, I think, to you this morning is God has given you a new home. It's a cleansed home, and he's asking you to fill it with praises. And that, that does not just mean, you know, workers at home. I'm not telling you you just have to stay at home and just worship, and that's your only job. I'm saying that the place where God has given you to dwell, the place that you inhabit, if that's a, a kitchen, if that's a, a home, if that's a nursing facility where you work, if you're an accountant, if you're a CEO in your workplace, as a teacher in your neighborhood, PTA, whatever it is, God has given you a place to inhabit with his praise. And the, the work he's done in you, Heather, is he's cleansed you. I had, this is connected to you from yesterday. It's, it's cleansing and you rejoice in the salvation that God has wrought. So much of the power of your testimony to people around you in these next years is because what God has already done in your life. And some of you are thinking God has to do something new so I can have a testimony. And I just want to erase that thinking. What God has already done to cleanse you. What God has already done to bring you freedom. What God's already given you words to speak, you get to release now. It's from a cleansed place and it comes out in rejoicing and in praise and it's powerful. The presence of the Lord rides on the praise of people. We know that. Lynn comes in here and worships with some of her friends and people and angels every Sunday morning at 6 o'clock and the presence of God rides on that. So I want to just announce to you women the power of your praise. God has given you a place to, to dwell and inhabit. I, I don't know how, what that looks like very specifically for you, but there is a, certainly a calling for women right now, and the city needs you. So not just the church, not just the vineyard, not just the nursery. The nursery does need you, okay? <laughs> not just the nursery, Right? The women were released yesterday into apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. The kingdom needs you. And so you get to declare what God has done. You get to walk out the praises of God in very intentional ways. Let's, let's pray for that. So, Lord, I um, just uh, ask that you would uh, plant that word deep in the hearts of every woman here. You would remind them of their calling, their cleansing, their giftings. <coughs> Give them the ability to trust and rejoice in the place in which you have set them right now. And I ask now, Lord, for fruit to come from their lives. People coming to Jesus at your workplaces. Your children responding in ways to God like they haven't before. Stray children coming back through mothers prophetic words going out, whole new lands, whole new fields in the city being taken because God speaks to one of you and together as a group of trees, you yield a harvest of righteousness. Lord, thank you for the teachers that you've given to us. We release the teachers in our midst, the women who have been called to expound and to release and to relate the word of God to every day. 
Lord, we want to release those women here with giftings that we don't understand. Because there are women here that have giftings that we just simply don't understand yet. We haven't seen them. We don't have a place for them. The church hasn't figured out how they fit. And we release them. And ask, Lord, that they would find a safe place here. And we ask that you do this in the kingdom all around the city. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up and talk to someone and give me a chance to find myself again. (laughs) Stand up, say hi to someone, say thanks God for the good words. Okay, that's great. Thank you for doing that. You can find your seat again. If you're making lunch plans, go ahead and finalize those now. You can text the address during the sermon. Okay. While you're finding your seat again, uh, let me remind you or possibly tell you for the first time how we understand prophecy at the vineyard. So I'm going to give about a 40-second teaching on prophecy. Um, It's clear in the New Testament that God still speaks through prophets. Um, The difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy is Old Testament prophecy was straight from the mouth of God, absolutely without error. And if an Old Testament prophet got it wrong, they were stoned. And I'm not talking about Colorado type of stoned. I'm talking about killed dead. (laughs) New Testament prophecy... 1 Corinthians 13, we prophesy in part. We understand in part. And so when the Lord gives Ron or me or any of you that we're praying for another a word, a picture, an image, a song, a thought, it's in part, it's not complete. And so you receive that as a gift from God that needs to be discerned, right? So uh, somewhere in the Bible, which I can't remember right now, it says, uh, hold fast to truth. Don't despise the prophetic word but hold fast to what is true and then let go of what is evil. So if any of those words that came this morning, you think they're they're not right, they don't apply to me, you you are allowed as a child of God to say, I don't think that's me. But if there's something that resonates and you can confirm it with other people who know and care for you, then you get to live in a new reality. It's a promise from God. So um, that's how we see it here. Okay, you're going to see a miracle. Some miracle is about to be wrought in front of you. A 30-minute message in 15 minutes. And I'm not going to talk fast. Uh, I want to look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. And this is going to start off as very depressing, but it's going to get real fun at the end. Okay? 15 minutes from depressing to fun. <clears throat> this is uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. The context of this passage that we're to in our series 
is Paul's really, he's giving like a last day's context. He's about to tell Timothy and by the Holy Spirit tell us as believers that follow Timothy, here's what it's going to look like in the last days. All right, so I'm going to read uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, see if anything looks familiar to you. I almost titled this sermon, It's Going to Get Ugly, but I decided not to. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. I'm reading from the NIV. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, you can see that back in Exodus, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, that's the two that opposed Moses, their folly will be clear to everyone. Eighteen ugly things. Did any of them look familiar? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good description of a great portion of our society. <clears throat> so Paul's communicating to Timothy, here's what's going to come. And he's also communicating to us, here's what you can expect in the last times. We are in the last times. I don't know when the last times end. I know that the last times began sometime after Jesus resurrected. And I know that they're closer now than they were yesterday. That's what I know about the last times. But read the description of the last times in the Bible and then look at the world and you go, oh, we're in the last times. It, I mean, it's, it's coming down. It's getting serious. Paul also gives the list to Timothy so that Timothy can reflect upon himself. So he says, don't be like these people. Stay away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. Subtext is there and certainly don't imitate them. Don't give them influence in your church or in your life. 18 horrible, ugly attributes. Maybe the one that summarizes the attributes best is this one. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And even though I'm down to 13 minutes, I'm going to take a sidetrack. Okay? Because I don't want anyone here, young or old, to think pleasure is evil. Pleasure is not evil. Pleasure, physical, palpable, emotional, mental, spiritual pleasure was designed by God. Right? The, the, when Jane and I were first married, we were given a book about sex, a Christian book about sex. You know what it was called? Intended for pleasure. God, God gave this as a gift. Right? So pleasure is a gift from God. It's not evil. To experience pleasure is not evil. To enjoy pleasure is not evil. To love pleasure more than you love God is idolatry. Okay? Pleasure is good. It's not bad. To love it, to enjoy it, to be a part of it, 
to give it, to relish in it is all good. To love pleasure more than God is idolatry. Because anything that we put before God in terms of the love of our heart becomes an idol. It's us uh, worshiping the created rather than the creator. So he's not saying it's bad to enjoy pleasure. He's saying that the day will come when people will put pleasure over God. And we see it all around. And let's be honest, it creeps into our own lives sometimes. That we find ourselves putting pleasure over God. I want to read uh, the New Living Translation. Uh, Just verse 5. This is how the New Living Translation puts this. You remember the phrase, having a form of godliness but without its power. This, this is another translation of that, which I think helps us to understand the meaning. They will act religious, those people, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. They'll act religious. It will look good on the outside. They'll have a form of godliness. They might have habits that look godly. They might have language occasionally that look godly. They might have bumper stickers that seem godly. They might wear t-shirts that seem godly. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. People who like the forms, the outward parts to appear, but not really, but have never been transformed, right? And we all know people like this. But before we look at the list and hear the description and say, sheesh, glad I'm not like them. Let me give you a little warning from one of my biblical commentary friends, my dear friend Philip Towner. I've never met him. This is what he says. It's up on the screen. Uh, Philip Towner warns us not to take this passage as just a graphic portrait of them as opposed to us and use it to reinforce the boundaries theological boundaries, social boundaries, sexual boundaries, economic or cultural boundaries. We prefer to live cozily within. It's meant to be a mirror. This text, those 18 ugly things, meant to be a mirror ready to reflect any unsettling and painful tendencies in our character. The mirror reveals to bring healing and growth, but the one gazing into it must own the reflection for this to happen. So, Let's not take this and just condemn the world. Let's not this, take this and just say, whew, I'm glad I'm not like them. Let's take this scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us and look at it like a mirror and see if we're reflecting anything. This is not introspection. It's not navel gazing. It's not condemnation. It's an invitation for the Holy Spirit like David in Psalm 139. Search me. Know my heart. See if there's any anxious way. See if there's any ungodly way. I mean, this is Lent, right? And no better time than to to, to bring the mirror of God's word up and say, does my life look like this? Which is an invitation into transformation. So what is the power that can make you holy? I had a lot of fun with this this week because I, I was going over and over this. Because I I, I thought, well, that's what I want to talk about is they reject the power that could make them godly. And I thought, well, what is the power that can make people godly? I would like to say it's the power of the Holy Spirit and once he's in, you're godly and, and that's it. In one way, that's true. 
right? Positionally, when Jesus comes into you, you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes with him, and he makes you holy. And God from heaven looks down and sees you positionally righteous as Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's a fancy theological term called justification. God looks at you just as if you never sinned. Wow. That's actually true. You are godly and holy. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, right? There's another truth that goes right along with that because we still live between the now and the not yet. The kingdom has come, but not fully. And so we have this body of sin, this body of sin, right? We live in a broken and a fallen world. That's not completely redeemed yet because that's going to happen when Jesus comes back and we're going to help rule and reign over that redeemed world. That's going to be fun, right? So there is a sense in which we are, we are justified before God, but our condition goes like this, right? This is the fancy term called sanctification. We're becoming increasingly holy. So there was a power that God applied to us to say, you are holy. Before God, you are perfect and righteous. Nothing you do will keep you from a perfect Father in heaven. And at the, at the same time, for Jesus to say, now grow in the likeness of Christ. Because day by day, we're becoming more like Jesus or we're becoming more like the world. Right? We can be wholly justified and still walk out a life that looks more and more like the world if we reject the power that can make us godly. What's the power that can make us godly? I'm giving you my opinion here. I just think it's right. The power that can make you godly is your decision to agree with God and choose based on that decision. That's what I think the power to make us godly is. These people with all those 18 attributes, they rejected the power that is the choice that they had to agree with what God says and then choose to act accordingly. In other words, they put the form on, but they were never transformed from the inside out. And so all they did was just a fake. It was false. They rejected the power of the transformed will. Of the, of the heart that's empowered by the Holy Spirit that actually gets to say to the Twinkie, no. Just trying to lighten it up a little bit. That gets to say to ESPN, no. That gets to say to the ninth episode of that Netflix thing you're watching in a row, no. To say to anger, lust, rebellion, disobedience. No, right? That's the power that can make us godly. Our decision to agree with God and choose based on that decision. First Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul writing again because he likes this theme. He says, train yourself to be godly. Well, wait a minute. If we're godly because Jesus made us godly, what's the training required for? Right? We have to train ourselves to live out in reality what's already true supernaturally we got to train ourselves we have to practice righteousness we have to practice godliness it's training for physical training is of some value but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come so godliness is a gift 
And godliness is a choice. To be godly is not very complicated. It just means this. Look like God. What did God look like? Just read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. To be godly is to to walk like Jesus. We have it over here, I think, personal transformation. One of our six values. We value personal transformation. We become more like Jesus every day in character and action. That's training to become godly. That's the work of God in us and through us and in cooperation with us. One decision doesn't make you godly, right? It might be the beginning, but it doesn't make you godly. In the same way that I, I have never been a smoker, but I've, I've known some, okay? <laughs> um, deciding to quit smoking does not make you a non-smoker unless you make that decision about a thousand times, right? The one decision is a great decision. It's just that it has to be made over and over again, right? You've got to make the decision not to smoke that one minute, and then next week, no, the next, no, the next minute, you have to make that decision again, right? Talk to someone who's been through AA. Maybe you yourself have been through AA. You don't become sober with one decision, unless you make that decision a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand times. And that's what it means to accept the power given to us to make us godly. It's agreeing with God every moment we're going to make a choice to do what you say is true. It's not just, you know, gut it out. It's recognizing that God has a truth for us about what is holy and right and in the end good for us. And making a choice that agrees with that. It's the power to make us godly. Hebrews 12, 11 to 13 says this. No discipline, see the theme we're on, training, discipline, godliness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Oh, you're brilliant, Paul, right? <laughs> you're, you know, you're running, you start running, it hurts. In the middle of running, it hurts. When you're done, you know what? It hurts again. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is not just the discipline of a father. You did a wrong thing, time out. This is the discipline that is the root word disciple. What it means to follow Jesus is to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And then to do it. To say, Jesus, what's the truth? And then to act on the truth. Not just once, but over and over and over and over again. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And listen to Paul's, it may not be Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, okay? Some guy who knew Paul. Therefore, Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. You are saying to yourself, Randy, what in the world are you talking about? He's just saying this. In order to to become godly, to be trained in godliness, to agree with God, we have to make a plan. We have to set a path ahead of us. You know, you know the temptation In whatever your area is, you know the temptation that's coming tomorrow because it's been there for the last 20 years. 
right? Does the enemy ever try anything new? Well, I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but he doesn't have to because we tend to fall for it. But make level paths for your feet. Make a plan. Take a step. I'm going to ask you during Lent, you've got 40 days. Read through Psalm 139 this afternoon or, or tomorrow morning in your quiet time. Through Psalm 139 and just make an inventory of your life. Okay? Don't write all the sins down. Just ask God, what would you like to point out to me? In this inventory, God, where do you want me to train myself for godliness? Is it related to what I eat or drink? Is it related to my thought processes? Is it related to the way I relate with people? What is it? Just one thing. And then ask the Lord with a few trusted friends, God, how do I make a level path to walk in? So that at the end of this walk, I won't be disabled like I feel right now, but I'll be healed. It's called discipline and it's a gift. I promise you, (laughs) discipline is a gift. And it yields at the end the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. Now, this application will look different for every single person in here. All right? And if you're sitting there right now feeling the condemnation of the enemy, tell him to go back to hell where he came from. If you're having a twinge of, God, I I know, I know there's a place where I walk off the path and I what? I choose to love pleasure more than I choose to to love you. You say, Lord, give me godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You ask the Lord to give you a plan. With a few faithful believing friends, you make a plan so that you can be accountable and then tomorrow walk the plan. And if you fall off, call your friends and then get back on and then walk it again. And if you fall off, call your friends and then get back on and walk it again. Right? That's discipline. That's how we avoid rejecting the power that can make us godly. That's how the world gets changed, through changed people. Not people with a form of godliness, but people who've accepted the power to make them godly. It's, it's our whole calling as a church to walk in deeper levels of maturity. It doesn't all have to happen at once. Forty days, one thing, God, train me in godliness. Teach me to agree with you about what you say is true. Bring people around me. You'll have to talk to people. Introverts, this can't be by yourself. Introverts, this can't be by yourself. We usually need to hear it twice. It's got to be out there, right? Let's pray. Stand. Some really nice boy's waving at me. Either that or he's saying, please stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which within us makes us holy, godly, righteous, white as snow. And we thank you for the gift of that Holy Spirit that also trains us and brings us to righteous points of decision. Fill us again with that Holy Spirit, Lord. Empower our wills, not just for one choice, but for that one choice a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand times. Lord, we ask for transformation. We ask for grace and faith to partner with you in truth and in walking out the truth. Lord, I ask uh, for 120 stories from this room that 
at the end of 40 days, stories of transformation. And Lord, we say to you now, we will not take the credit and we will not take the glory. We'll give you the glory because you have enabled us to partner with you in truth. Change us, God, for your sake, for our sake, and for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.